Yes, uh, good to see you. Uh, this is my first uh, Sunday ever at Tri-City, and so uh, I felt very warmly welcomed by the first service uh, and the second service as well, so good to see you. I, I was thinking about this actually in between services, and I, probably something a guest speaker should say is something to the effect of, you know, it's, a, it's an honor for me to be here, but as I was thinking about this text today, and I was thinking about how the first service went, it, it really is an honor uh, to be here and to uh, to look into the Gospel of Luke together with you today as this, this is part of a series you have been in, uh, in these later chapters of the Gospel of Luke. So if you have a Bible, I would love for you to join me in Luke chapter 20. This is where we're going to spend our time today. We're going to start in verse 19, picking up exactly where you left off last week in this scene where Jesus has an encounter with a certain group of individuals who have a very certain plan for his life uh, and for theirs. And so uh, I'm going to read this passage as we begin uh, all the way through, starting in verse 19, and we're going to go down to verse 26 uh, for our time together. So here's how this reads uh, in the Gospel of Luke, starting in verse 19 of chapter 20. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him, being Jesus, at that very hour. For they perceived that he told this parable, the one you covered last week, against them. But they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. He said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able, in the presence of the people, to catch him in what he said. But marveling at his answer, they became silent. So this is our teaching text for today, and something that I believe is so important is not just for us to, to, to breeze past these words or try to hear something clever from a, from a guest speaker. No, what I really think is that we all need the Holy Spirit himself to highlight something for each of us, myself included, in our time together. So I actually want to pause and pray one more time, asking that God would do exactly that, that he would use this space and the minutes that we've kind of set aside in our week to look at this particular text today and that he would use it to, to point out something that he wants us to hear. So would you join me again just as we slow down, pause, pray to that end. So Father, it, it really is a gift to be able to have a space like this and a time set aside like this to look at these words that you inspired, that you preserved for all these thousands of years and that you can use this very morning in our lives, in the life of this congregation, yes, in the lives of our families, yes, and in our individual lives. So we, we do pray that in the power of your spirit, you would make this time faithful to your word and that you'd make this time helpful 
to your people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So let me, let me paint a bit of uh, a picture for you here with this. We, we sometimes, or at least this is the, the, the struggle I face, is that you, you come pa- across a passage, maybe like this one, maybe you've read it before, maybe you've heard it even preached before, and, and sometimes we just kind of go right through it and we get to, oh, Jesus said this neat thing, and there's a teaching there, and, and that's great. But for us, I think what we miss if we do that is, is the tone and the soundtrack, the color, the high definition of what's going on here in this scene. Let me read for us again just verse 9. 19 of our text and and start to give us a sense of the setting here. So the the scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him. I don't know if you've ever had somebody seeking to lay hands on you, but this is the scenario Jesus is in. They perceived that he had told this parable, the one that preceded it, uh, against them, but they feared the people. So in the opening verse, and then in the one that follows of our scene, the the, the writer Luke, he's painting a picture of the formation of of a conspiracy against Jesus. It's a conspiracy that eventually finds its end in in the arrest and in the murder of Jesus. But I think it's helpful for us to wrap our minds around this a bit, lest we kind of miss the the tension, the dramatic elements of what's going on here. Like, Like we live right now in a time where the idea of a conspiracy it's not all that difficult to, to, to picture in our minds, is it? If you've spent any time online in the last few years, if you've watched the news at all, if you've, if you've just been aware of the world around you, the idea of conspiracies or conspiracy theories are, are quite popular, right? The earth is flat. Birds aren't real. Uh, something to that effect. And yes, birds aren't real. That was a real one I came across this week. Uh, this is a real conspiracy theory. Uh, one of the most intriguing ones, though, I've, I've watched over, just over the past several days it surrounds a movie that's in a select few theaters right now called Sound of Freedom. And some of you may have seen it, but what's been really strange behind the scenes to this is there are multiple accounts all over North America of people describing a, a strange unusual experience that they've had in trying to see this movie. It's a movie about uh, human trafficking and the the intent is to expose these these real dangers and dynamics and, and evil that are in the world that we live in. But people have found it unusual trying to see this movie. For example, there, there have been multiple accounts of people really struggling to get a ticket to the movie in the States. And, and they, you know, it's like, it's sold out. Why, why is it sold out? It seems like, you know, the theaters are filled. Sometimes people are even getting tickets to this, seeing that, wow, we got one of the last seats in the theater. They show up and they're like the only ones there. This is, this is strange. Like online, it said this, this was sold out. And it's multiple accounts of something like this. Or they're going there and the, the movie gets disrupted or it doesn't play. Or it's like, hey, we, the general manager comes out and it's like, hey, we, we actually don't have this movie somehow. Sorry, we, we, we lost it. We misplaced it. We didn't download it. Some, somehow it's not here. Or, or others where it's like somehow the, the fire alarm mysteriously went off in the whole theater during the screening of this movie and now we have to leave. Or, oh, the, the manager comes out and the, the AC is not working. Sorry. It's going to be uncomfortably warm in here. We're actually going to pause this show and you'll have to come back another day. It's as if the narrative is something like, is there something going on? Are there forces at work that do not want the American public to see this film? And on the other side of the political spectrum, it's actually, no, the the producers, the makers of this film, this is a conspiracy theory to make us think bad things are happening in our world. And so the idea of truth in this one little example, and there are many others, is that truth is just something that's so difficult to understand right now. So difficult to wrap our minds around. We just, it's like the idea is under attack and anybody who has a truth claim, we should be highly suspect 
of them. There was an article in a publication called The Atlantic that, that analyzed conspiracy theories saying this, that they tend to emerge in times of rapid cultural or demographic change, not unlike the times we live right now, and perhaps not even unlike the times in which Jesus is moving through this, this road to Jerusalem on the way to accomplish God's work. Many theories reflect unease with that change, suggesting that it's not the result of evolving values or newly emergent communities, the messy progression of democracy, but instead the work of a hidden network of nefarious actors. Try to capture some of that tone here in our text. It's what's happening in Luke's gospel. There's rapid change going on. There is a hidden network of nefarious actors and what they are doing behind the scenes dictates what's gonna happen in the scene. I think as we, as we are kind of bringing that dynamic with us into the text, we, we start to feel the tone of it. We start to see what's going on as, this, as the, the scene progresses, this conversation happens. There's, there's an appreciation, I think, of the tension in the text, which actually will help us to see the brilliance of Jesus and what he does in this moment. So what actually is going on here? Well, our text today is a climactic moment that follows the tension that started at the beginning of this same chapter in Luke's gospel, in chapter 20. So it's between the Jerusalem leadership and Jesus. So he's teaching in the temple. They challenge his authority. And for the first 19 verses of this chapter, his interactions with them make, make them furious. He stumps them with a question. He tells a parable like against them, cutting them deeply. And you can imagine for, for a group of, of powerful men who have had significance and security attached to their high position, as they have all of that undermined publicly, you can imagine this is a problem that they want fixed. They're not used to this sort of challenge. They're not used to sort of this unsettling nature of things, let alone being publicly happening amongst them. So what do they do? Well, they set up a surveillance operation. They're monitoring Jesus closely. And rather than them going and facing further public embarrassment, they recruit some people to act as their agents on their behalf. And this is what happens. They, they seek to lay hands on him. Going back to verse 19 and 20, they perceived they told this parable against them, but they feared the people. So they watched him. They sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. Conspiracy, this secret plot, it's hatched, and now it's time for them to get some payback. So they pop this question, verse 21. They ask him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Like, I wonder what the tone was there. Verse 22. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? So there's two, there's two comments we, we, need to, we need to make here. First, and then both of them have to do with what, what is happening on the surface doesn't necessarily reflect what's going on under the surface. What we see doesn't actually match up with reality. First, it is possible that our words appear to match our hearts, but actually do not. Like, if you notice what they say in verse 21, everything they say is true. Jesus does speak and teach rightly. He doesn't show partiality. He does truly teach the way of God. Remember, verse 20 said that they are pretending 
to be sincere. The original language, the word means they're literally playing the hypocrite. And the problem with hypocrisy, as one commentator notes, is that not that it doesn't tell the truth, but that it tells the truth without sincerity. And I think this is a problem for us sometimes too, isn't it? Like if you've been a Christian for any number of time and interacted with any non-Christians in your life, you'll know that the church and Christianity and Christians themselves, they, they're often accused of things like hypocrisy. Bunch of hypocrites. That's all you people are. And sometimes our critics, they are correct. Like it is quite possible that, for example, you could, you could sing the songs in this service and that the, the, the lyrics that are on your tongue don't actually align with the values in your life. I, uh, something fun fact about me, I, I grew up playing basketball. I loved it. I also loved that playing it in, in middle school and in high school, there was, there was one move, if you had the ball, there's one move that would work on your defenders like nearly 100% of the time. And it's a move called the pump fake. If you're familiar with it, what it, what it basically is, is you, you pretend to go for a shot. And like, I, I think partly because you know, guys at that age are full of testosterone and what they want to do is they want to go up for this block. Anytime someone goes to take a shot, they want to have that feeling of smacking the ball midair and turning to their bench or their peers and going, yeah, I did that. Like, I've, I've experienced it. I know the thrill of that. The pump fake worked on me 100% of the time too. But when you had the ball, there was this great feeling that every time you use it, the prison's probably going to bite. Their body jumps up into the air. They go for this block, which then frees you up, having deceived them, frees you up to then keep moving with it if you hadn't dribbled already, maybe make a pass or have a better chance at, at taking a shot and making that shot. The idea is simple. Your external actions look like you're doing one thing, but your internal intent is to do something else entirely. The pump fake. And when I was reflecting on this concept and what we see in these spies in this story, I kind of took a step back and went, okay, is there somewhere in my life where I'm trying to pump fake Jesus? Like it's a, it's a weird word picture, but think of this for your life. Is there somewhere in my life where I am doing something externally that doesn't actually match the internal intent that I have? Do I come to church? Do I do certain things in my community group? Do I do certain things in serving amongst Christians? Is there something I'm doing that looks like, sounds like, I'm doing one thing, but, but, but deep down, I'm actually in an entirely different position in my relationship with God. So let me give you a window into what happened to me as I, as I was thinking about this. I, I think actually for me, I, I've struggled with the opposite, like a, like a reverse hypocrisy. It's not one where, where I say the right things or do the right things in relationship to Jesus and don't mean them. It's the opposite. It's where I'll affirm certain things that are not in line with the way of God when I, when I know deep down I don't actually mean them. So what do, what do, I, what do I mean by that? And I, I, I wish you hadn't asked the question, but I'll tell you anyways. Um, does, this, does this ever happen to you? Like I, I think of all the times I have like laughed at a joke um, that, I, that I know I should not have. It was the, the, the construction of the joke, the idea of the humor around it. It's not really in line with, with biblical principles. It's not really in line with the way of Jesus and his ideals for society. But I just kind of go along with it based on the group I'm in. Or where I'm, I'm sitting in a conversation and I'm listening to somebody's maybe false beliefs, false claims, things that they value. And, and all because like, I don't want to cause a problem. I don't want to look bad. I just kind of nod in agreement and don't challenge it at all and just kind of make it look like I'm, yeah, I'm on your side. I'm on your team. I'll, I'm with you on that. When deep down, I'm like, I'm really not. 
Like, I know what the Bible says. I, I, I go to a church where the opposite is proclaimed and celebrated, like, but, but I'm still doing this. Has this ever happened to you? Like, it's, it's I, I get it. Like, it's, it's in, in the words of one uh, comedian I heard, it's very complicated to be alive right now with all the opinions you need to pretend to have. And I think it's this type of insincerity that perhaps for me and, and perhaps for you is something that God wants to highlight from this text. Like, maybe, maybe the Holy Spirit wants to point out a friendship you have where, and maybe, maybe through peer pressure, you, like the, like the people here, are playing the hypocrite. You're pretending to be sincere. Your, your words, your actions, they're showing one thing, but, but your internal self is positioned somewhere different. Maybe it's in, maybe it's in worship. You're, you're proclaiming truths to Jesus about who he is, about what he's done, but you're not really living like he's actually ruling your life. And what's weird is, when I see this in myself, like, I, I know, I, I can't fake out Jesus. But maybe I need to understand, like these spies who are literally in the presence of the Lord, like we are also literally in the presence of Jesus. And we can't pump fake him. He sees us. He sees through us. And yet we spend a lot of time living like he doesn't really know what we're up to. Like he doesn't really know what we're looking at. Like he doesn't really know what we're doing. Is there an area that he's trying to highlight? That's one, that's one observation with their question. But a second thing that, that's happening uh, you know, above the surface that doesn't really reflect what's going on beneath the surface isn't just to do with, with people's words and their intent. It's actually possible that God himself here appears to be in a lose-lose scenario. Because if you think about it, their, their question is genius, like, I don't know if you've had some sort of conflict in your workplace or maybe in your family where, where you, something's happened to you and you're like, you know what, I'm going to actually construct a, a, a something to say, a statement, uh, a fact, and I'm going to bring this truth bomb. The next time I see them, I am going to drop it on someone where you know, well, there is going to be no comeback for this. You, you just bring it out, you slap it down, you drop the mic, you walk away, got them. I can imagine them feeling this way. Like they're, they're, they have this sort of like sinister anticipation of, of dropping this question on him. Like I imagine they brainstormed in their conspiracy and went, what are we going to do? How are we going to trap him? Hey, and one guy kind of puts up his hand like, what if we ask him this? And all the people around him are like, oh, what if we ask him that? Yeah, what if you ask him that? Uh, what? No, no, no. What? what if we get somebody else to ask him that question? And you can imagine as these people pretending to be sincere show up to him, they're physically in the presence of this one who's, who's kind of publicly caused a stir, gaining popularity, and it's like, okay, we're going to assign somebody that they're going to they're gonna pose that question to him. And you can imagine being that person going, there's going to be no comeback for this. We've got this guy. Because in this context, it's like, wow, he, 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 has, he has made us look silly. He's had some big one-liners. He's silenced us. He's left us looking foolish. But now it's our turn. Payback is coming. And in the context here, this is a brilliant trap. Let me explain. If you look at their question again in verse 22, is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? Here is the dilemma. As we kind of keep trying to keep ourselves in the dramatic tension of this scene, here's the dilemma with asking this yes or no question. On the one hand, if Jesus answers, yes, it is lawful, They've got him. 
Remember, the conspirators against them, they're afraid of the people because Jesus is gaining popularity. What are you going to do when someone's gaining popularity? How are you going to solve that problem? You got to make him unpopular. And what better way to do that than with a question that had both economic and emotional triggers for the crowds. Tribute to Caesar was a regular, and it was a tangible reminder of the Jewish people's subjection to Rome. So for him to say yes would make it look like he supported this regime that they hated. Especially for some of these more nationalist type people in, in the Jewish realm who saw Jesus like, perhaps this is our political Messiah. If he answers yes, this would have been a devastating move for him. Because now, whoa, this, this, this discredits him as our hope. So if Jesus doesn't want to get in trouble with the people, well, he cannot answer yes to this question. However, on the other hand, if Jesus answers no, it's not lawful, they've also got him. Because remember, the conspirators, it's what we already read, they want to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. And what better way than to publicly use a question that had treasonous triggers for the empire? Like tribute to Caesar was an indicator of allegiance to Caesar. So for him to say no, it would make him look like he supported revolt. He supported revolution. He, he supported undermining this authority. So especially for the ruling authorities who would not tolerate the uprising of a political messiah, this would be a devastating move for Jesus because it would credit him as a criminal. So Jesus doesn't want to get in trouble with Rome. Well, he cannot answer no to their question. Can't answer yes can't say no, like it appears he's in between a rock and a hard place. Lose-lose. So, so I wonder, as I think about this scene, I wonder what it was like for the first followers of Jesus, like for his original disciples to hear that question asked. They're standing around, there's these people coming up, looking like they're sincere, and all of a sudden the scene gets this really dramatic turn with this question, with all the weight behind it. Like I wonder if in the time between their question... And his response, I wonder if their bodies kind of tensed up a bit. Like if they physically like, <gasps> how is he going to answer that? What's he going to do with that question? They see the position he's in and, and maybe from their human perspective, they see this as like, this is a no-win scenario. And as I imagine that for them then, I consider that for us here and now. Like, like right now, I wonder if for somebody in this room, you are in a circumstance where it appears like, look, regardless of what happens here, this is a lose-lose for God. Regardless of how he answers my prayer, when he answers my prayer, if he answers my prayer, no matter how this scenario goes, this is a lose-lose for him. There's no way he's going to look good based on what I'm going through, regardless of the options that are available now. Or maybe even worse, it's like regardless of how this circumstance plays out in my, in my relationship, in my, my finances, in my health, regardless of what happens here, this is a lose-lose for God because what, what will occur will, will make him look bad. He cannot be good regardless of how this goes out. Is that, I, want, I wonder if that's where you are. Because for me, as I think about this text, I think this scene helps remind me that even with the best of, of human logic, even with the best of human perspective, there is a wisdom that characterizes God, which motivates me to trust him, even when it looks like there's no way out. 
I need this text because it motivates me to to restore again a a belief that I, I don't see any way out of this. This is a brilliant trap my circumstances have put my Lord in. And yet I'm reminded that there is a wisdom and a love that characterizes God that allows me to go, I can't see how this could work out for good. But I'm just going to trust anyways. The scene reminds me of that. It's possible that God appears to be in a loose-loose scenario, but he's actually not. Look at his response in verse 23. He perceived their craftiness and said to them, show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. He said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said. They were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said, but marveling at his answer, they became silent. Why, why does this astonish them? Why do they marvel? Why does this plan for payback backfire? Well, there's two things we need to see. First, by asking for a coin, they themselves, as the questioners, as the ones on the offensive, now have to go on the defensive. Because by pulling it out, they have to admit how they already live under Caesar's rule. Denarius had an image of, on one side of their emperor, of Tiberius Caesar, and then around it, this inscription that said something like, the son of God. Which, if you are a religious leader at that time of the Jewish people, you can't, you can't believe that. You don't believe that. And yet, you're carrying these things around with you in your pockets. For them to be carrying around these, these blasphemous coins, it, it actually puts them into the same trap they wanted to put Jesus into. Like, the, the spotlight w- was on Jesus, but now what's happened is, they, after trying to put him on the spot, the spotlight shifts to them as people who are already using the empire's currency. That's one layer to this. But second, by commanding them to give back, they have to consider not just how are they already interacting with Caesar's rule before the question's even asked. They have to consider how they already live under God's rule. Like Jesus' response is surprising. His response is insightful and it probes into the deep levels of the questioner's hearts elevating this public conversation to a much more important level. He, he takes their trap and turns it into a teaching. And if you're thinking of this as this dramatic tension is building and building and building conspiracy, working its way into an unwinnable scenario, you think of these movies where the hero is being chased or pursued or, or this, this net is closing in around them and it's like there's this moment where, where the, the crescendo of that scene hits this climactic point and it's like there is no way out and somehow Jesus turns the plot completely around, this major pivot point. It's like, you've heard of the Jesus who flips tables. This is the Jesus who's now turning the tables. And in a way, it's like they lose more than they could have won in this exchange. They're stunned into silence. They marvel at his response. And truthfully, so do I. Like, the more I think about it, it's like, this is astonishing. They had this genius plan, but his response is even more genius. And I wonder, like, aren't you impressed this morning? Like, aren't you impressed by Jesus? Do you ever come across a place in Scripture where you're like, wow, like, I needed to see Jesus in that light today. Like, aren't aren't you glad you've come to a a service on a Sunday where the Bible is open and and you're in a position where you can have a filling of fresh wonder at who your Lord is? 
Not one who can be conned, not one who can be trapped, not one who can be manipulated, but one who can take a moment like this and turn it around and make it something far more teachable. And if you're not there yet, well, let's dig a little bit further into what Jesus says in verse 25. So he said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to, God's, and, and to God the things that are God's. So the word render here, it like literally means give back. So Jesus' command is to give back what already belongs to Caesar. So it's like, well, did he answer? Yes, did he answer? No, it's like, well, look, Caesar already owns this stuff. Give it back to him. But more than that, I'm going to include this with your question. Give back to God the things that already belong to him. So these coins, well, they have Caesar's image. They belong to him. And while we're at it, guys, why don't we think about this? If something bears God's image, it belongs to him. And in a similar fashion that Jesus always has, he takes, he takes a moment like this in real time and points people back to the foundational principles of Scripture. Because from the start, we have been told that humans are those very beings that uniquely bear God's image. Genesis 1, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created a male and female. He created them. Oh, I'll, I'll take your question and let me remind you of something that's far more important than just this small little trap you guys had for me. There's a big takeaway for us here because if all people bear God's image, then all of human existence belongs to God. They try to make this a thing about Caesar and Jesus' relationship to the empire. And, and he goes, actually, you know, there's something far bigger here. You want to talk about stuff that has an image of an emperor? Let me remind you of who's got an image of God himself. Give things back to him. Because look, all people are bearing his image, which means all of human existence belongs to him. And this, for me, is where this gets really practical for us this morning in two ways. First, how, how does God's ownership of all of humanity, shape how we relate to our specific government. Okay, so now you're like, okay, well, how is guest speaker going to handle like that question? Because I've been dying to know, right? <laughs> okay, look, like we, we, should, we should be careful to, to take this small scene and try to create a whole theology about the relationship between church and state or government on the basis of just one text. But having said that, I can't ignore this question because Jesus' reply aligns with the wider vision of the early church. Like in Romans 13, where Paul encourages the church to be subject to the governing authorities, paying taxes, respect, and honor to whom it is due. That one doesn't sit super well with me often. Or in 1 Peter 2, where Peter encourages the church to be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, to live as servants of God and honor the emperor. And if we were diving into those texts specifically, if those were our teaching ones, we could probably get far more specific with this. But I think suffice it to say that Jesus' reply here, it does contribute to an important perspective for us. Like I think as I saw this, it's like maybe for us in Canada, we're like, I kind of wish Jesus would say, no, it's not lawful to pay taxes. Lord, have you seen where inflation's at? Have you seen the taxes we're paying? Like I was in Alberta last week and I'm paying like a buck 20 something for gas. And I'm like, celebrating. When I, like years ago, I'd have been like mourning, grieving, like weeping. I can't fill this up. And people are there telling me, well, yeah, it's because of the taxes that you guys have that we don't. I'm like, taxes? Like, does God have something to say about this? Anyways, so Jesus replied, it's contributing to an important perspective. There is a domain where Caesar should be served. He brings that up. But 
Regardless of that, even if that's true, that domain where Caesar should be served, it's inside of a larger sphere where God is to be honored. And that first priority informs the second. To live rightly in an empire is to think about an empire's rule, yes, underneath the larger rule of God. Which, for me, I take to mean that it's possible to dishonor God by dishonoring government. Jesus' reply, it acknowledges the rights of a state, but it doesn't deny the authority of God. And in his response, he's showing, like, this mission, it's not just about challenging Rome specifically. It's far more beyond that. My mission is bigger. My goals are bigger than just these political things. And I think maybe this gives us a starting point for thinking about how we relate to our own government in Canada. Provincially, federally, maybe the simplest way is to go, okay, if my first priority is, yes, this larger sphere, God rules things. Okay, if I'm going to honor him, what is something I know I can do based on what he has already told me? If obedience is honoring God, is there something I can obey about my relationship to government? Well, yeah, there is. In 1 Timothy 2, it says, pray for your leaders. Pray for those above you. Maybe that's a starting point for how we interact with somebody like Justin Trudeau right now. If nothing else, it's like, you know what? I need to honor God first and foremost. And the way I can do that in relationship to government is I can do what he's told me. I can pray. And a second practical implication of this, taking us out of this government conversation, because I think this is a bit even more important, more into the thrust with what the text is getting at. How does God's ownership of all humanity shape not just our relationship to government? How does it shape how we relate to him himself? For us to bear God's image means like, I not only owe my very being to God, but I also experience the fullness of my humanity in relationship to him and in obedience to his word and ways. Humanity, myself, we must therefore under, like, render and give back to God everything, ultimate submission, because we're made in his image. This plan for payback is used by Jesus to teach them about the ways humanity ought to pay back to the ones whom they owe, to render, to give back to those in authority over them properly. Political rulers, yes, but first and foremost, God himself. And the difficulty I imagine for them is a difficulty I see in my, myself. Like, like, rather than following Jesus, there are times where it's like, okay, I, I think maybe based on the world I live in, based on how culture puts pressure on me, based on how my friends talk, based on just the, the, the narrative in social media, based on whatever it is, there are times where it's like, sometimes maybe I'm like the spies. I would just rather try to get Jesus out of the picture, push him aside. And, and all of this from the belief that, you know, maybe life would be better without his presence, without his teaching. Submission to God, well, sometimes it seems like that, that would lead me away from what's good for me. But we need to give God what's his which, by the way, is everything. So it's like I need to go through, like I'm going to do a deep clean of my house. Like I need to go through the closets of my life and go like, like not physically, but just in general. Like are there things I'm hoarding, things I'm hoarding like away from God that I'm not giving back to him? And as I, as I audit that, it's like oddly enough, it's, it's usually kind of something similar to the religious leaders in the story. It's something attached to my security, like finances, It's something attached to my significance, like, you know, playing the hypocrite, pretending to be something I'm not all to contribute to the value in my identity or something like that. And so I don't, I don't give God that corner of my life. 
Listen to this um, quote that really struck me in connection to this text. This is from a pastor in New York. He's speaking to fathers. He's speaking to men. So you're going to hear that reflected in this quote I read. But, but I think this has principles for all of us, given what Jesus is saying. I'm just going to read this. It's not going to be on the screen. Listen to these words. Most Christian men I meet don't struggle with the idea of discipleship or the reality of Jesus' call. They struggle with something harder. They struggle to commit to all of it. If we were honestly to lay our hearts before the Lord, I believe he would be more interested in the parts we're holding back than the parts we've already given. Like in all relationships, God wants a full commitment. In the same way your wife appreciates when you buy her flowers, but would much rather you stop looking at porn. God wants to get hold of the things we hold back. Give to God what's already his. I was thinking about this on Thursday and I was, was like, okay, so how, you know, I'm going to teach this. I, I better think through like, Lord, what do you want to do with this in my life? So I, I'm sitting there, I reach for a cup of what I thought was full of coffee. It wasn't. So I'm like, okay, well, great. Now I don't have that distraction. That must be from the Lord. So now I'm going to sit here and reflect on this even more. And I'm sitting there going, okay, so what, what exactly is here? Like, what does this rendering to God thing mean for me? And, and here's what I concluded. And I wrote this down so I would get it right. I concluded that in every place of hesitation and resistance, this is true. My resistance to give God more of my life comes because I do not believe that nearness to God is actually good. Like if I trace every area of disobedience or half obedience or some sort of hesitation to do what I know I should, all of it traces back to this idea, this this false belief of, I don't know if that's actually good for me. But we know that's a lie because we know obedience leads us into greater closeness with our Father in heaven. And that can only lead to a greater sense of God's love, of God's joy, of God's peace. And deep down, that's not only what I actually want, that's what I really need. And so do you. Yeah, there's a struggle to render to God the things that are his, but maybe that struggle is reduced when we stop believing lies about who God is and start seeing him rightly, which is why I want to end our time by praying something very specific for us. I want to pray as Jesus taught in the Lord's Prayer. Just the opening lines, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And why I want to do this is because I think for us to, to get it right, and unlike how they got it here, we, we need God's help to treat him as he ought to be treated, to know him rightly, to experience him accurately. We can pray this way. And I, and I was thinking about this in between services. This is a, a second service bonus for you who show up to the second service. I was like, you know what? They had the inscription, not just the image. They had the image of Caesar and the inscription about him. Something God tells us that after Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension, he sends the Holy Spirit. And what does he do? He writes the law of God on our hearts so that we as image bearers actually go one step further. We actually have the spirit himself to help us do what he's commanded. And so this is why I want to pray this way, hallowed be your name. Like I came in here today believing that in this room, there's a bit of conspiracy. There's a bit of hypocrisy. There's a bit of spy-like behavior in each of us a bit of resistance to the the way of God and the teaching of Jesus. And so what 
these people need is what we need too. They need to truly see him, truly know him. So let me think about this as we, as we pray. Like uh, maybe, maybe you think of that pump faking question and you go, maybe there's an area of life where I'm pretending to be sincere around others, but deep down, I'm content to be distant. I'm content to be disobedient in that area. And my feeling is that if that's the case, it's like we're treating God like he's a joke. We don't see him as the one who sees us. And, and when God is a joke to us, there's, there's a need for his name to be hallowed. Name being representative biblically of his character, of who he is. Capturing all of that. There's a need for him to be treated as supremely sacred and important in our lives. So I want to pray for that, for that reason, but for a second reason as well. Because I think where I'm also challenged is to think about how this prayer can be for those I care about, those that God loves that are currently distant from him. That maybe are similar to, the, to these, these leaders, maybe similar to these conspirators going, I'm fine to have Jesus not in the picture. I'd actually rather him not be. And maybe there are people that you know where you're like, man, I just really wish this person was following Jesus right now. But right now they currently are not. Jesus, and later in Luke's gospel, we'll see this. He would go on to die for these spies. He would go on to suffer for these spies. And so as we pray that God's name would be hallowed, it's not just for our lives, it's for the lives of others that God loves, that we care about, that he'd do a work to cause his name, to cause all these things, that our ideas about him, for them to be realigned with who he actually is, not just in our lives, but in the lives of others as well. So I'm going to pray along these lines, and maybe my words can guide you somehow in the prayer for whatever area of life you're pump faking God or whatever person that's come to mind that's currently not following him the way they ought, seeing him the way they ought. So would you join me as we pray along these lines as Jesus taught? Jesus, we, we begin by, with, with gratitude, knowing you've, you've instructed us how to pray. And we know when we pray along these lines, we're praying something that's in line with your will. And so we start by just acknowledging who we're praying to, our Father in heaven, I pray that there'd be an increase of that reality in our lives, an increase of understanding the deep value you have for us, an increase in understanding you're above all our circumstances and yet so near to us. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Pray that in our lives and in the lives of others that all the wrong ideas we have about you would be replaced and corrected by your spirit. That we would see you rightly, even in the areas where it's hard to see you at all right now. Help us as the, as the people of God in the lower mainland and as Tri-City Church to keep you holy in our lives as you are in heaven. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.